Jesus. Amen. You can have a seat. A quick reminder, uh, we're doing something a little new this time around with this series. We have a, an insert. The sermon outline is on one side. I would encourage you to take as many notes as, as you can today. Uh, take this uh, word of God and teaching home with you. Um, on the other side is a bunch of stuff for you to use in, in personal or family devotions. Uh, so just wanted to remind you of that so you didn't forget and, and toss it out um, on the way out of church today. So I really wrestled uh, with how to how to begin the message today. Um, on the one hand, I wanted to say kind of nothing about what I'm about to say. Um, <laughs> it's always a good way to start something, right? But I just felt with everything going on, um, it might be kind of helpful. And then looking at the topic for today, resisting the world and everything that entails, um, I think it's important. So uh, some of you might be aware uh, of a historic and uh, pretty shocking political upset that took place this past week. Um, many of us might be pleasantly surprised, maybe even a little bit jubilant at the results. Uh, many of us are disheartened, even fearful. I think perhaps many more of us are somewhere in the middle, uh, finding it hard to shake the feeling that our country was maybe in a lose-lose situation all along. Many had feared what Hillary would do, especially maybe to the church, if she were elected. Many now fear what Trump will do now that he has been elected. Now, regardless of what your view is on all of these things, I think you'll agree that as a nation right now, we're kind of this messy cocktail of, of hopefulness and, and hopelessness, of excitement and apprehension, of, of fear and felicity, confidence and confusion. So, remember this. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. So let's love each other. Let's not fall into the trap of, of despair on the one hand or arrogance on the other. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in the place where God dwells. So let's remember that. Let's act like it. Let's make sure that the world sees that. So all of this actually leads pretty well into our topic for today. Um, we find ourselves in week three of the resistance, when we're talking now about resisting uh, the world. Last week, we talked about resisting the devil, and as we began to hint at last week, uh, resisting the world is actually a natural and necessary extension of resisting the devil. After all, the Bible calls the devil the, the prince of this world, or, or the god of this world. And so, the scriptures teach us, and by extension, so does your sermon outline, do not love the world. As we read in our epistle lesson for today, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, especially that last part, maybe sounds, sounds a bit harsh. It's a pretty stark warning. But James actually takes it a step further. In just a, a few verses before our epistle reading from last week, where he talked about resisting the devil, James says this, you adulterous people, ouch, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And then we have Paul's famous words in Romans where he says, do not be conformed to this world. 
to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Each of these passages in the New Testament are, are really restating a recurring and, and common theme that we find throughout the Old Testament. Don't be like those around you who place their hope and trust in idols and kings. We hear this again and again throughout Scripture, and we heard one example of it today in our reading from Leviticus, where, where we heard, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. So God's basically warning his people Israel, no matter what the Bengals may sing, don't walk like an Egyptian. Don't place your hope in false idols and in horses, and in chariots, and in armies, or city walls. None of these things helped Pharaoh at all, or his people, and they actually ended up dragging them down to the bottom of the Red Sea. And don't live like the Canaanites, who trust in the idols of their fertility religion, who literally make gods out of sex, and worship the weather. I am the Lord, your God. But Israel did not listen. Despite repeated warnings, Israel commits apostasy and and copies the lifestyles and and the idolatry of the non-Israelite nations all around them. They, They try to worship Yahweh and other gods. But it can't work that way. Taking marching orders from within the creation itself always leads to complete insubordination toward the creator. There's no middle ground If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. And so Israel's idolatry eventually leads the nation into exile, um, a reality that the Bible kind of describes as this, this national corporate death. So as you think about that, what are your idols? Power? Sex? Money? And the world has plenty of these things to offer it to you and, and so much more. But it only offers them to you so that you will offer yourself up to it. C.S. Lewis writes, Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it. While really, it is finding its place in him. You could say the same about any other number of of potentially good things that that Satan warps and and tries to to turn into evils if we allow him to to turn them into gods. Our idols will destroy us. It's really the only thing they can ever do in the end. The idols of the other nations uh, destroyed Israel too, but it wasn't idolatry alone that, that led them down the path of destruction. When Israel was freed from slavery and established in the promised land, they began to look around at all the other nations around them, and they realized that these other nations all had kings, while they only had Yahweh. So they said to the prophet Samuel, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. You know, those nations, God said, don't be like them. Well, God acquiesces, but but he warns the people that no earthly king will ever live up to their expectations. So if you're expecting Donald Trump to save America, um, you just might be a little disappointed. Only Jesus can save America, and the whole world for that matter, and more on that later. On the other hand, if you are terribly disappointed 
that Donald Trump was elected, it's going to be very easy for you to lose hope. For all of us, the scriptures give us some sound advice, and you've probably seen this verse on Facebook as much as I have this past week. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. One of my favorite hymns that that was sung at my dad's ordination service and then my ordination service also says, Trust not in rulers, they are but mortal. Earthborn they are and soon decay. Since mortals can no help afford, place all your trust in Christ our Lord. Do not love the world. Do not give your heart or your faith to idols or kings. Don't be conformed. But nonconformity is challenging, to say the least. The world will do everything in its power to get you to fall into line. The world wants you to believe that resistance is futile and that that going along to get along is in your best interest. But God calls us to resist. First Peter says, live no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Peter says that that if you're resisting the world, following God, living in his way, others will be surprised that you don't join in with them. So maybe ask yourself, am I surprising anyone? Jesus has said of us, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Does your life demonstrate that that's true? Don't fall in line. Don't believe the propaganda. The the world will tell you, you know, it's not really a big deal. It's, It's a good thing to just let loose and have a little fun every now and then. You know, when in Rome... Do as the Romans do. What happens in Vegas? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. What happens in Vegas has eternal consequences. When we accommodate the culture and, and uh, don't have any discretion or discernment in the shows that we watch or, or the things that we expose ourselves to on television, the, the behavior that we tolerate in ourselves, we're giving into the world. And it's prints has control over us and entices us away from God. You know, when the Nazis invaded and occupied other countries, their number one goal was to get the people there to accept the new normal, to get comfortable with with the new order of things, with the way that history was progressing, to stop asking questions or raising objections. Don't give in. Don't conform. Don't heed the world's platitudes when they fly in the face God's word, discern, question, object. But I have to warn you, the world's not going to like it. There's a cost to nonconformity. As Jesus prayed, the world has hated them because they are not of this world. In Hebrews 11, this this great chapter about faith with all these examples of people who had great faith Uh, The cost of being a faithful Christian is not sugar-coated. Here's what it says. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, 
and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Not exactly something you'd find on a a gospel evangelism tract, right? There will be a cost if you don't fall into step with the world. But we know, as John reminds us, that the world is passing away along with its desires. And whoever does the will of God abides forever. So we press on. We don't live lives of withdrawal or seclusion, neither of arrogance nor self-righteousness nor hatred. We recognize that our war is not against those who don't believe, but against the God of this world who has blinded their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And so for this reason, we do not fear the world either. We are, as God calls us, to be steadfast and immovable in the fight. In week one of our series, we talked about how how Martin Luther himself and, and the later Lutheran princes all stood up for the truth, even to the point of death. When the empire told them to shut up, they boldly professed their beliefs. They knew that the world can persecute and even kill Jesus' followers, but that this will only strengthen the kingdom of God, since that kingdom was accomplished precisely through Jesus' death and then was implemented through the suffering of his followers. So part of resisting the world means fearlessly standing up for the truth and for fighting against injustice. There's no shortage of examples of those who did this under the Nazi regime. Now, this woman is Irena Sendler, who was a plumber in the Warsaw Ghetto who smuggled Jewish infants to safety past Nazi soldiers in the bottom of her toolbox. She was eventually caught and had both of her arms and both of her legs broken by the Nazis, but not before saving an estimated 2,500 children. This man in the circle there is August Landmesser, who refused to give the Nazi salute because of his relationship with a Jewish woman. He was later imprisoned and then drafted into military service, where he was killed in action. This picture from our video is of Georges Blind, a member of the French Resistance, who if you look closely, it's a very famous picture actually, you can see him smiling at his own execution. As it turns out, what you see in the picture was, was only a mock execution meant to intimidate him into divulging information to the Nazis. He never did. And he later died in a concentration camp in November of 1944. And this, of course, is Scott Hislop. Oh, no, sorry, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So Bonhoeffer is a Lutheran pastor. Sorry, Emily told me not to say that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was in America during the rise of the Nazis, and um, he could have very easily stayed safely in America. He was very opposed to the Nazi regime. He knew he'd kind of you know, be in the thick of it if he went back, but he went back to Germany anyway and, and ultimately got involved in a plot to kill Hitler 
Now that failed, he was arrested, tortured, and killed. Now his most famous quote that uh, many of you are probably familiar with is, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. That's just powerful words. We don't know exactly where that quote came from, actually. It's not found in any of Bonhoeffer's letters or, or writings. But one kind of lesser known quote that definitely comes from him is this. We are not to simply bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice. We are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. All of these people and countless more who resisted the Nazis when it was believed to be the height of foolishness to do so demonstrated what resistance means. Are you willing to do the same? Are you willing to resist the world no matter what the cost, no matter how foolish it appears? Are you willing to stand against the evil and injustice of practices like abortion in our nation? Are you willing to confront the violence that's taking place even now in our nation? Are you willing to stand up and and to say something or do something when you see somebody being exploited in any way? Are you willing to stand up for your faith in the midst of mockery? Are you willing to turn the other cheek Are you willing to smile in the face of death? If so, you're in good company. The church has been a resistance movement from the beginning, always countercultural and often persecuted by the culture or even the government. This painting is, is the earliest known artistic portrayal that we have of Jesus. It was found in the early... You know, it comes from the early 3rd century. It was found painted on the walls of the catacombs under the city of Rome. At the time, Christianity was literally an underground movement. Christian imagery could not be made explicit. And so the Christian symbol of, of the fish, or the ichthus, uh, which originally started out as an acronym uh, for the Greek words for Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior, Uh, became a symbol that was used by the Christian church in many ways. It it marked secret meeting places. It marked Christian tombs. The story goes that that when you were a Christian in the Roman Empire and you you met a stranger on the road, uh, you would draw half of the ark of the fish. And if the other person completed it, then you would know you were both in the presence of believers. Today, of course, the symbol is still alive and well. And somewhat ironically continues to be associated with mockery, um, if not persecution. Interestingly, the symbol that Charles de Gaulle chose to represent the French resistance in World War II was a cross, namely the the cross of Lorraine. Well, how fitting, uh, whether he meant it to be or not, that the symbol that de Gaulle chose to represent his resistance movement is the symbol of the greatest resistance movement of all time. The cross reminds us that Jesus himself was executed by Rome for sedition. It shows us just how much the world mocked the one who came to save it. Crucifixion was used by the authorities to make brutally clear who was in charge and to break the spirit of any resistance. It was meant to degrade and humiliate and intimidate any opposition. 
Isn't it beautifully ironic then that the cross itself has become a symbol of resistance for us? The cross is foolishness to the world, scandalous and shameful, but it is the power of God because by it Jesus has overcome the world and death itself. So as N.T. Wright says, the cross is not a sign of death, but a sign of the end of death. That gets us to the last part of our outline. The cross brings about a whole new world. Could have used Aladdin and Jasmine here, but I thought that would kind of break what I was trying to do. God has a plan for the world. And with the death of Jesus on the cross, the plan is underway. Paul says in this just hugely important passage from Ephesians chapter 1 that God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and what? Things on earth. All throughout the scriptures we're we're given different glimpses into exactly what this means. Now, nowhere are we given the full picture, of course, but we're given enough for now. The Bible talks about how all creation groans as in the pains of childbirth and and how the whole world will be set free from its bondage to decay. It speaks of a new heavens and a new earth, of a heavenly city that will come down among us as, as Jesus returns and brings with him the fullness of his kingdom. It promises bodily resurrection for all people, eternal life for those who have trusted in Jesus as their Savior. And so we confess with our fellow resistance fighters throughout the ages, the church past and present, I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Will you say that with me? I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And coming it surely is. As one song puts it, the liberation will not be televised when it arrives like lightning in the skies. So we don't love the world, not as it is now, but we look forward to what it shall become when God renews it completely. Right now, the world is is decayed and and eaten away by sin, ruled over it, at at least in, in a certain sense, by Satan. But God so loved the world that he sent his son to transform it, and with it, you and me. And even now, he is in the process of transforming and reclaiming the world through you and me. So resisting the world doesn't mean that we check out. God calls us not to escapism, but actually to further engagement in the world. Because, I just love this quote by N.T. Wright, we as Christians are called to stand at the dangerous but exhilarating point where heaven and earth meet. We have the privilege of of doing something kind of like what the French resistance did after D-Day. Like then, so also now, the, the liberation is on its way, but it isn't here yet, at least not completely. You and I are intended to be agents of its arrival, catalysts of the rule and the reign of God coming to the earth. The invasion began at the cross of Jesus. That's where the revolution was launched. That's when the world began to be changed. But we have a role to play before the process is made complete. 
Now, Jesus prayed on, on Monday, Thursday, right before his death. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. You know, we don't just happen to be, you know, this cliche phrase, in the world, but not of the world. We were sent into the world for a purpose. Not to be thermometers reacting to to whatever is going on around us, but to be thermostats, to use God's word to set the temperature. As we heard in our video earlier, we may not look like much sometimes. But then again, nobody thought that Jesus' mission had amounted to anything as he lay dead in the tomb. And yet, by his death, he had already begun to rescue the world. We also are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And nothing can stop us. In this world, we may have tribulation, but take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. We are forgiven and freed by his blood. And we have been deployed to announce and to embody the love of God in this world for this world. And our world needs that now more than ever. So I started this message by referring uh, to, to the challenges that our country faces right now. And there's a famous quote I've seen in all the stuff that's being shared online and, and wherever else. Now, this famous quote that, that nobody really seems to know where it came from. Some people say Confucius, others Eleanor Roosevelt, and pretty much the same thing, right? JFK. Um, nobody really knows. But it says this, It is better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. Yeah, that's pretty cool. But Jesus did even better. He didn't curse the darkness. He came into the darkness and himself became a curse for us. He didn't light a candle. Instead, he himself came as the light of the world. And he let the darkness extinguish and engulf him so that his eternal light and life could burst forth into this world once and for all at his resurrection. So, may we, his followers, those saved and transformed by his death and his resurrection, be lights in this dark world. Next week, we'll be talking a little bit about how how dreadfully challenging this can be because we ourselves are far from perfect and daily have to resist our own sinful nature. Until then, resist the world even while God uses it to renew it. In Jesus' name, amen. May the peace of God, which transcends our understanding, guard your hearts and minds in and through Christ Jesus our Lord.